0: Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better.
1: I think when you make yourself more valuable outside your organization, you make yourself more valuable inside your organization by taking on community roles and professional organizational roles.
0: We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world, and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest, one of the vice deans at NYU School of Law, but it's in my role as co-chair of the Women's Leadership Network that I host this podcast. My guest today is Elizabeth Brato, a member of the NYU Class of 1990, and the author of The Counselor's conversations with 18 courageous women who have changed the world. It's only my hope that they'd change the world even more. It's my pleasure to welcome you here, Liz, to the conversation today.
1: Jeannie, thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Because this podcast is oriented around women, we start with this question. What was your experience as a law student?
1: I I loved law school. I might have said to you before, that it was such a a special coming of age time because I had spent so much of my high school and college career focusing on getting into law school, but then I got to law school and I could finally enjoy the ride a bit more. And I was exposed to people from all over the country and actually became friends with some LLM folks. And so you'd say people from all over the world and it's so intellectually vigorous here. I had um, a clinical experience. I, I was on a, a, a journal. I had a group of friends. I threw myself into my classwork. I did research for a professor. So I put a lot into it, and I got so much more out of it.
0: And then you graduated, 1990. You know, this was when the world was already, you know, your oyster. Yes, sure, sure. I graduated, and I was always
1: a little let down by the work world. And I would say that my years at NYU were the happiest uh, of my life until my daughter. And so still just, you know, right, right behind Abigail uh, is NYU. And I was able to take so much of what I learned here, not only the legal substance, but how you fill in the lines of being a professional, uh, I, I learned here, and apply that to the work world, and that same kind of work ethic uh, that I learned here by example of trying to take advantage of every opportunity and to uh, get out of it what I could. Though, of course, the the first thing I'd, I'd say was a big difference was being female was so much more of an issue in the workplace than it ever was in in school.
0: Well, let's talk about gender politics then, because I hear that a lot that women while they're in law school they don't really experience particular issues with being a woman. They think, well, you know, I'm here with my colleagues, everything's great. But they get out in the workforce and they start to feel it a little bit more. Talk about your experience as a woman in the work as a professional. Sure. So
1: law school is, is what, half and half male, female in the graduates, or maybe even trending toward more female. And when firms hire they're hiring half male and half female. And then somewhere along the way, the the numbers change and they change significantly as far as women not advancing to partner, or once they become a partner, not advancing to equity partner or not getting the top, you know, the C-suite roles in, in corporations. And why is that? I have asked myself, some of it certainly has to do with women opting out and women maybe feeling that they can take more chances and don't have to stay on a traditional corporate path. But then are they opting out because they're emboldened or are they opting out because they're disenfranchised in some way? And so that's an issue. And then they take on family roles. Also there could be unconscious gender bias in the workplace not to mention deliberate gender bias in the workplace. And I think another factor is sometimes this uh, exclusion from informal networking. That's the kind of thing that can propel your career
0: along. You've been a huge proponent of mentorship and networking and making those connections. What advice would you give to people about mentorship generally?
1: I am the beneficiary of one definitive mentoring relationship in my life and so many others. And I, I define mentorship very loosely. I would say it's anytime someone is willing to help you along and it could be because they've done it before or just because they're able to help you. And the traditional mentor role is a senior junior kind of thing, like a teacher and a student, but there's peer to peer mentoring. There's also the kind of mentoring that a more junior person does for a more senior person. And You know, a quick example that comes to mind is something like with social media, being, you know, tech savvy, you know, the more junior person teaching the senior. But then the senior person in general, you know, could have a lot of things to teach, not only explicitly, but by example. And uh, in my own life, I learned so much when I would just um, sit and watch my mentor at work. And if I watched him on the phone on a conference call and how he would strategize and proceed and he would take two steps forward and one step back and he'd say well I'd hate to have to file that kind of emotion but you know if I have to I will you know that that sort of thing and you can't learn that from a book and you just you just watch a professional at work who's good at what they do and then you and and you learn it and it it fills out again fills out the lines of what it is to be a professional.
0: I see sometimes that it's like um, a patchwork quilt that you learn in little dribs and drabs and it all pieces together and it all works. I've learned as much from bad bosses, quite frankly, (laughs) as I have from good bosses. Yeah. Um, Because I think, oh, I'm never gonna do that.
1: Right, right. Someone can show you what you don't wanna be as much as what you wanna be perhaps in certain instances. And I've certainly uh, realized that whenever you're in the company of someone who's good at what they're doing, you can just watch them. You can't be in a relationship with everyone and that's not the only way to learn. So if you just observe the way successful people, top management handle themselves in all different aspects with all different kinds of people, from colleagues to negotiating to adversaries, you can learn from people who are successful at what they do.
0: It sounds like one way to approach the idea of mentorship. I love the idea that you said that it's loosely defined because it sounds like one way to approach it is this Buddhist notion of the beginner's mind. It's just being open. I've walked away from meetings sometimes and I thought, I'm going to remember that phrase. I'm going to just jot that one little phrase down because that's useful to me. Absolutely.
1: Or I'm staying at a friend's house today and I saw glue dots in her kitchen. And I said, oh, I just used those for my daughter to make a board for school with the pictures for her birthday. And Nancy said, oh, I use them to keep my clothes stuck together when my blouse is too deep (laughs) or to, you know, the way I might use a safety pin. She said, you use those little glue dots. I thought, you know what? I'm going to start using glue dots that way.
0: We load up this term mentorship to mean something so heavy and so big. But maybe the best advice is to think of mentorship as, just as you say, very loosely defined. And it just means being open to snagging every possible bit of good from every possible conversation we have.
1: I I think that's it, is whenever anyone's done anything before and you can learn from it, why not gather best practices everywhere you go? you know, you've been to a a car mechanic and I haven't. I say, "Uh, Jeannie, you know, the guy said such and such. What do I say to him? And you say, well, you know, he's going to da-da-da-da and he's going to highball you. You have to this, that, that. Tell him you're going to go somewhere else. Tell him that the radiator is probably it. And then I call him back and I do whatever and I'm better for it having had your input. And, you know, I should also then, I would add as a little, you know, mentoring protocol, I would say I should come back and let you know what happened and thank you and that's whether it's in a professional context or anything in in real life skills i would say in a more professional context i think it's good when you can tell a mentor this is my goal this is what i'm trying to achieve this is the reason i can't get there by myself i need an introduction i need such training i i need you to inform me about a a conversation that you you had. And then the mentor can help you with, whether it's education, training, and introduction, their own sponsorship of you. And the idea is that when you're seeking out a mentor, it's not that you want things handed to you. It's that you need a helping hand and that we all do. And so to maximize your opportunities and create some opportunities by having these relationships.
0: So those are the more informal we're gonna catch everything in our net that we possibly can. Then there's also the slightly more formal, we're going to actively search out for a mentor. We're gonna look for a professional guide in the more traditional sense of the word. What advice would you give to people who believe their mentors might not have their best interests at heart, who aren't the right mentors? Sometimes we see this in a professional path. I've heard about this in law firms. How do you determine when mentorship is effective?
1: I would say that it's um like any other relationship
0: in a, in a sense that you know you need to be it's like, like a something. good boyfriend or a bad boyfriend
1: right exactly. <laughs> right exactly yeah right to use the simple you know go to metaphor right is that uh you can you can just know when you're getting something out of it or when it's something that you find supportive and sustaining and when it's not and and i I'd, I'd want to add the point that. Merely because the person who's going to help you has something to gain from it, that's not a reason to disparage the whole transaction. <laughs> and, and for you know, for instance, if you are in a law firm and you need to be somewhere else for, for whatever reason, there's a whole, a whole host of reasons someone might want to leave a, a firm. It could be the practice group they're with, uh, the nature of the work, a personality conflict. It could be something about lifestyle. And so... If a partner in a firm is helping to place you in-house, they might have to gain that you would then send them work and that's fine. Let them help you where you need to go and if they would benefit from it, that there's no harm to you because of it. And I would add that that's just kind of what makes the world go round, is that um, if when we can find these synergies with each other, and ways to refer work back and forth to each other, or to help advance each other along, that that just means you're in the mix. Now, I'm not sure if this is also part of what you're raising which is what about when you have these uh say mentorship programs something that's assigned and you're just not hitting it off with that mentor Th- that kind of thing i think you could you know if you think there's enough to be gotten out of that mentorship program this institutionalized mentorship program then i would say to go ahead and just try to find a way to ask for another mentor if you can if not Maybe the most practical advice is just go through the motions with this person and to just go ahead and keep seeking out other mentor relationships, other networking, and do what you need to do to advance your career without rocking the boat where you don't need to. I would say, you know, you rock the boat when you need to, you have a battle when you need to, but you don't have every battle and, you know, don't make an issue of everything every time. I think that's one thing I would say I have picked up through life in the work world is that just because you spot a gender difference or a gender issue doesn't mean that one, that moment has to be a thing. There's plenty of them that have to be a thing, but um, to pick and choose a bit to have some perspective because most of the time when someone says or does something biased, discriminatory, it says more about them than it does about you. And so you know, if I, if I can kind of get on with it, I'd rather do that. And uh, where we can all kind of help to educate each other to be more inclusive and to value diversity—that's the bigger work, I would say, for for all of us.
0: Life is short. Pick your battle. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. No. Exactly. But um, you know, that all said, I think corporate mentor programs. Are terrific. I mean, what they what they do is they seek to recreate the kind of informal networking that has helped so many people along. Traditionally, what you would call the old boys network, right? Um, you know, men who know each other from the military, from prep school, from from team sports, and from practicing law together, or from serving in government together. And and over time, they all get to know and know of each other in a community golf games and tennis and, and, and refer to each other and friend of a friend. And this is how you advance your career along. So then, you know, women come into the workplace and, and so this is something about, say, the difference between sponsorship and mentorship is just because someone gets you an opportunity there, you are plopped in there. Now, what are you going to do? If someone's opened the door and let you in the door, what are you going to do? If when nice. you you're now you're the first woman judge sitting around a table with 10 male judges. What's next for you? You haven't been in the military. You haven't played team sports. You didn't go to a male boarding school with them. Where, where do you connect? And so corporate mentorship programs are meant to recreate this informal mentoring, seeing the value from them, and trying to get senior employees to share what they've learned and those who've had some success to assist others coming along. I think everyone who has advanced, though, has an obligation to try to further practices and policies that invite participation by women and minorities to give us, to give us critical mass. And, and so I don't have to tell you, I know your background, critical mass, meaning you don't have to have a majority to have a sea change. Uh, critical mass is more like a third. And that when you hit that, organizations seem to change and become more open and evolved.
0: The social research seems to show that if there's just one woman in the room, the conversation still seems to lag. But if you get three women in the room, then we start to pay attention. Oh, that's
1: interesting. Do you call it critical mass? Yeah. Okay.
0: I, I, I thought that was the term I was trying to grasp for. I would love for you to tell the story of something that happened on your fifth reunion. Ah. You came right. back. We had Janet Reno here at the law school. We're, we're going to find the tape someday. Yes, we we'll
1: we'll find it. <laughs>
0: We were all so excited. Here we were, like the first mm-hmm. woman attorney general, woo Janet Reno. This was really exciting. It was and such a big deal. She was in Tishman Auditorium. Mm-hmm. The place was packed, mm-hmm. and you stood up and asked a question.
1: Right, so she gave her prepared remarks, and then there was a Q&A, and I asked her, what would the world be like if we flipped the males and the female ratio in government. So, make the president a woman, make the Supreme Court seven women and two men, and then take Congress and flip. You know, if it was nine women senators, now there's only nine male senators, and just do that flip. And now, what's our country like? What's the world like? What's the agenda? And the entire auditorium cracked up with laughter. And I... Was not asking it as a joke.
0: It seemed funny, <laughs> just, and
1: and she had a you know a good a hearted chuckle about it. And she was very thoughtful. And she said that we would have a very different agenda in, in terms of childcare and healthcare and work life balance. And she said, childcare, healthcare, work life balance. Oh, and it was something like she said, we'll never have true equality in this country until we have childcare everywhere for working women. And that, that's an interesting thought when, you know, that U.S. attorneys' offices or something have facilities or that certain offices do. What if all offices did? And what a difference that would make for working women. And she had identified that, you know. Well, it's, maybe it's a kind of an obvious thing to say, but she said it a long time ago, and it's a great idea, and who knows if we'll ever get there.
0: <laughs> it seems maybe a little naive and absurd uh, right now, the notion that merit will out, especially now, given our political climate. Um, given that that's the case, now what? That was in 1995, and we were incredibly optimistic that those uh, – I mean, even then, people were cracking up. We thought it was possible. What do we do next? I think that it goes to
1: the things you can do for yourself outside of your traditional education. That is the networking, so it's networking, role models, mentors, sponsors. Then it's joining organizations, uh, professional organizations, with the intention of furthering women along and with connecting women for referrals and and other professional purposes. Find supportive men. There's no such thing as a women's movement without supportive men. And one of the women who I had interviewed, Lynn Heck Shafran, she told me that someone asked her husband, what's it like to be married to a feminist? And he said, I don't know, go ask her. And the idea You had to think about it for a beat, but the idea is that he's the feminist and that she's married to him. So what's it like to be married to a feminist? I'm the feminist, ask her. And so certainly there is no women's movement without supportive men. And so while we can, in the first instance, it's easy to find a woman, right? So in the first instance to make affiliations with any and every woman you ever can, I think is a a good idea. And then also to seek out supportive men who value diversity, who value inclusion, and that these are people to be mentors and, and sponsors. Also, I, you know, I don't know if we need things like the, the quotas like they do in Europe for uh, boards. The critical mass is something to look for. To where you see it, you're bound to be more comfortable. Again, back to your psychologist stuff, and you know, the idea of, you know, find your community. And so, when you find a place that already has a critical mass, you're bound to be more comfortable. Then your next choice is, well, am I going to be where I'm comfortable or I'm going to go where I'm not comfortable and try to make a change to help them get to critical mass. And so maybe try to do some of that in various contexts of your life. Some is going to be your day job. Some is the other organizations that you might help out with. And, you know, and by the way, those other organizations, I think when you make yourself more valuable outside your organization, you make yourself more valuable inside your organization by taking on community roles and professional organizational roles. And another thing, as I would say to, you earlier I said something about picking your battles and, and whatever, and I only mean that in a practical the most practical way in that you can get exhausted and this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so to just get that rhino skin on and Eleanor Roosevelt spoke of it, Hillary Clinton spoke of it to just not be so reactive. Go ahead and take a moment and process it and, you know, be as angry as, as you want, but you can't write every mean letter. You can't do every complaint. Just figure out what's right for you in the, in the bigger picture. I think, and to seek opportunities and to, to let it be known that you want opportunities, then you'll have the education, you'll have the skill set, so you'll meet the merit part. But that other part of learning to ask, being comfortable to ask, and having your rhino skin on, sometimes no means not yet,
0: hmm.
1: sometimes no means maybe, come and ask in six months. And it's a little bit salesy. And I, I would say that at one point in my career, I, I did some business development. And I, I say sometimes to my friends who are getting into pitching business with law firms and whatever, you've just got to get comfortable with ask, ask again, ask again, do a follow-up email, make a pitch, and sell yourself a bit. And so some of that can uh, help a, a career along and help go along with the, the merits that you bring to to anything,
0: does that answer your question? For a woman to survive, she's got to be both persistent and resilient. I think so. Yeah. No. Well said. I mean, I I, th- I think
1: I think that's just it. And you know, it's a little selfish, right? I mean, it's for your own good you'll think you'll, you'll fare better over the long term. You don't want to, you know, be done with this all too soon. You want to have a career that goes on and on and be a professional. It's not about a job. It's being a professional. That's why you come to NYU is that, you know, you're learning how to address things that matter to be in the world of ideas, to be ethical and to have connections with people and to act a little, you know, above the fray and and to be progressive and, and make a contribution that, That helps. So you need to conserve your energy a little bit.
0: Liz, can we talk about crying at work? Oh, sure. You mentioned in your book, uh, actually, it was in your interview with Pat Schrader. Mm -hmm. She brought crying out of the closet, you say in your book, (laughs) when she wept during her farewell speech of her campaign. Right. Um, Recently, Chuck Schumer teared up over Trump's un-American ban and was accused of fake tears. John Boehner was uh, christened the weeper of the house. (laughs) I think a lot about this business of crying at work. It seems to reveal authenticity and vulnerability at work. Nora Ephron says, beware of men who cry. She says it's true that men who cry are sensitive to and in touch with their feelings, but the only feelings they tend to be sensitive to or are in touch with are their own. Um, um. <laughs> but women are particularly susceptible to this phenomenon, really, of tears at work. Right. So do you have any thoughts about this? And you're, you've had so many conversations with women.
1: Sure. Um, I guess I could say first publicly and then privately. So, but the public includes the private, meaning these...
0: Liz, we're on the record here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> these gentlemen who are crying while they are going about their business. When do you cry? Why do you cry? It's, it means there's strong emotion there. And the strong emotion could be happiness, like at a wedding or, you know, when I see a new baby, it could be uh, something evocative, the AT&T commercial where the mom says that the son called just to say, I love you. And, you know, and you're a robot if it has never made you cry. And then there's sadness, stress, frustration. And that's where we're seeing our, our public officials shed a tear, empathy, and frustration over a hot issue of our time, gun violence, immigration. Or in the case of Pat Schroeder, that she wanted to add a voice to the political season for women and children and families. And then she said, it was only my tears that got the headlines. And uh, critics said that they wouldn't want a person who had their finger on the nuclear button to be someone who cries. And her belief was, but wouldn't you want that person to be someone who cries? Why would you want someone with their finger on that button who doesn't cry?
0: At the same time, Hillary Clinton got a lot of flack for appearing to be less than emotional. She got a lot of flack for being so buttoned down.
1: Right, which was probably training over the decades because of things like what happened to Pat Schroeder, who then told me she kept a a file of people in in public office who cried. It was Ronald Reagan, it was George Bush Sr., Margaret Thatcher, Oliver North. And she said, the way we've evolved is now that um, crying is something a politician almost needs to do to show that they're compassionate. And that, the way she puts it, uh, that we said, the crying comes out of the closet. And so when we see a politician, a public official, cry it means that they're feeling strong emotion and I think it's a good thing I think it means that they're human and so that's the public part of it and for someone to say whether someone's tears are fake or not it's just that's just silliness we 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 all know where tears come from and what that means as far as a workplace matter I will say that earlier in my career I would cry at work and then somewhere I outgrew it. It just simply was a sense of perspective and the feeling that you know this is paperwork and it's important to me and it's important to other people but chances are it's just about money and or it's probably not even about whether someone goes to jail or not. Or right? It's probably just about money and It's a problem that we can fix. And even if we don't fix it, we'll still fix it. We'll have another chance to fix it. And so just a perspective that the work we're doing is not whether someone's being turned out of the country or or, uh, whether someone is living or dying, it's in fact a professional paperwork job that has stress and sometimes feels like it's not fair, but it's not a real problem a real problem is when a family is separated uh, because someone's being deported. That's a problem. You know what we're doing with this draft versus that draft and the time frame and the movie that I'm going to have to miss. That that's not a real problem.
0: I had a friend who used to say, "Is anybody bleeding?" And <laughs> I sometimes say at work, "Is anybody's heartbroken?" Right. Right. It's a different conversation. Yeah.
1: And so I just I just don't do it anymore. Just somewhere along the way, I lost it. And so see, now we just said. And I haven't even had the public scrutiny. I mean, so you, you speak of, you know, Hillary Clinton. Look at, look at that scrutiny. I mean, of course she lost that. Of course she would uh, lose that a- along the way when there's so many criticisms and unfair criticisms that can come your way from people just even saying that the tears are, are fake. Why is that even something to comment on?
0: It's still an issue.
1: It is, it is definitely still an issue. And um, I would say in general, though, it's the feminization of our society and it's a good thing just like you know flex time and the idea that uh, it's more acceptable now to say I'm going to go watch my son's soccer game at four o'clock so I'll log on later I'll see you guys and you just leave and men do that and women do that in an office and that is not the traditional workplace and that's because women started to be in the workplace and they had responsibilities with children and with parents and so they made things flexible and now both genders can benefit from that. I'll say women brought crying into the workplace. It wasn't there in the same way before. And now we are just more evolved and showing our humanness and that we care about things. That's what
0: crying says to me. Our authenticity, our vulnerability. Sure. We get to be fully ex- expressed as human beings.
1: And, and that's part of being a professional too, right? Is that is that you care about what you're doing, even if no one's bleeding, that you care, that you bring a sense of, of pride, that you strive for excellence, and that that this does matter. And thus, stress, frustration would bring a little tear here and there. And, uh, you know, back again to your expertise, there's also um, studies about, what is that? There's there's an actual chemical release. It's just, you feel better, at, you know, you just do when you feel better. It was uh, some kind of natural painkiller or a stress release in tears.
0: Well, they say that there's a little bit of an oxytocin let let down. My own recommendation is to cry in private where possible, um, just because there's a perception, especially among younger women, that it shows a lack of control. Right. But um, I think that it's on the margins and it completely depends on the situation. Right. Um, If it looks like somebody's completely lost their gourd and they've left the meeting... (laughs) You know, it's not my preference because it unravels everything else. But it's hard to say. Right. People have different
1: differing views. I made someone cry in the workplace just once, and it wasn't my fault. I um I felt horrible about it though. I came into a conference room, and we had it was war room. There were piles all over the place, and the junior associate said, "Amelia wants the da 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 right now." And you know, I had been out for a little bit, so okay, I'm I'm looking for it. And she was getting worked up and she said, right now, and I said, blank name, Um, whether you are telling me that or not, I can only find it as fast as I can find it. So just give me a minute. And I think that's all I said. And I think that's the way I said it. And she collapsed into tears. And I felt horrible. Oh, absolutely horrible. And that's the that's the only time. But I realized in hindsight she was already she was ready to cry is what is my point, is that it was gonna be whatever was the next little thing. And she just needed her good crying. I'm glad she had it. The other thing I would say when it was me who used to do the crying is I did always have a little kind of informal protocol which was I just have to make it to the restroom. I just I just because you wouldn't want the perception of not being able to hold it together. So, I I said to myself I it's kind of time place and matter, right? Like where you're going to have your protest or when someone's quitting smoking. So, I'm just not going to I'm just not going to smoke in the car. So, I would say to myself, <laughs> "I know I'm going to cry. I know it's what I do." So, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get to a bathroom stall. And that was my compromise. And then
0: and then like I said, eventually
1: it it went away.
0: Don't cry in meetings. Cry in a one-on-one. Cry in your office by yourself. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> I like to end the podcast with this question. What advice would you give yourself on the first day of law school? And then what would your student self say if she saw you today? Oh, that I know. <laughs> I know she would love Abby. She Right. <laughs> there's, there's that. And um,
1: she would say, why do you worry so much? Oh. And um, it didn't matter, a lot of it, the worry. And then I think back to why didn't I listen to him more is, uh, what, you know, again, back to that auditorium where, uh, where Janet Reno spoke. Dean Sexton, one of the first couple days, had, a, had the 1L class in there and he shut the doors and he said, okay, it's just us. Welcome to your legal career and he said, you can relax, you've done it. The thing that I had said to you of like of striving all through high school, all through college, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this thing of getting to law school? He said, you're going to have a legal career. You can practice law. You're not going to flunk out. You could be a CEO. You could serve in government. I can't promise you you're going to be a Supreme Court clerk. That's probably the hardest thing, but you want to have a legal career? Here, you're going to have it. Just enjoy. And I wish I had been able to enjoy the ride a little more earlier and just believe him because it's actually true. So if we could relay that to students today, you're here, you're going to have a legal career. There's plenty to do. There's lots of work for all of us. Lawyers change the world. Uh, Lawyers desegregate the South. Lawyers um, bring down the Iron Curtain lawyers find disappeared people in Central America. Lawyers do all kinds of great things and you can be a part of it.
0: Thank you, Liz. It's been a great pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu. Dot edu slash women's